Okay, greetings all you 99 percenters. This is Alternative Visions. This is Dr. Jack Rasmus. All right, today's show. Uh, we want to talk about the uh, meeting here at uh, Jackson Hole by the Federal Reserve and other central bankers. What does that mean for the U.S. and global economy? Uh, on the international scale, I want to talk as well about the decision uh, by the BRICS. That's B-R-I-C-S. That's an acronym here uh, for uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. This alternative uh, grouping uh, that's been around for a while here and in, uh, to the U.S. Uh, G7, you might say. And uh, its expansion. It's uh, noticed that it was going to expand uh, uh, a half a dozen more countries are going to join the BRICS. What does this mean uh, for U.S. global economic empire going forward? All right. And uh, but first, I want to say a few things about uh, the Ukraine war latest uh, event here. And that is um, the head of the mercenary Wagner uh, group. Uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, right? He was the head man there. Uh, he's the guy who, back in June, uh, took uh, his his mercenary troops and tried to march on uh, Moscow. Got half of the way there, and then a deal was made, and he stopped. And he uh, was uh, kind of given a, a reprieve and sent to Belarus with his with his troops here rather than have a civil war, military erupt in Russia. Well, this guy uh, apparently uh, got his. Uh, a couple of days ago, his plane flying uh, from Moscow to Petersburg, St. Petersburg, uh, blew up. So uh, apparently he's dead. He's been assassinated. The question, of course, is who? <laughs> uh, well, also a question of how. It's still unclear uh, whether his plane and his uh, lieutenants flying with him, 10 people, uh, was destroyed uh, because of a bomb on board or because of a missile fired uh, at the plane. Now, in the West, uh, this is a very convenient event for the uh, anti-Russian crowd here and the pro-Ukraine war crowd, uh, because they're arguing already without verification. You know, we can't really know exactly what's happened yet, but they're arguing that oh, uh, Putin did it. Uh, Putin uh, shot it down, right? Russian military uh, missile batteries uh, knocked it out of the sky. Uh, well, that's kind of strange because we there are pictures of. Uh, of the plane falling, videos of the plane falling uh, out of the sky, but no, uh, no uh, um, videos of uh, missiles uh, uh, impacting the, the aircraft before it did. Uh, well, maybe he still could, maybe, I don't know. Uh, we can't really know what's going on, but there's an investigation that will follow up. Uh, but the narrative in the West is to try to leverage this this whole event uh, to say that, oh, Putin got him. Uh, 
payback, Putin payback, right? Uh, this guy uh, almost caused a civil war um, with his military march on Moscow here. Very dangerous when you have private military groups within a country. First thing it really does is it makes the uh, official military uh, uh, either jealous or resentful or angry. No one in the military wants private competitors. You can imagine if we had that in the U.S., how the U.S. military would react to it. Well, the Russian military didn't like this guy either, uh, especially since this guy was uh, very, very public even before his march on Moscow, uh, really criticizing the heads of the Russian military. These guys, uh, his name is Shoigu, He's like the defense minister, and uh, then Gerasimov, who was like the chief of staff, like Milley in the U.S., the chief of staff, Joint Chiefs, that was Gerasimov. And uh, Shoigu was like um, uh, secretary of defense, okay? Uh, and uh, this guy, Prigozhin, um, really uh, criticizing the management of the Ukraine war and these very, very top leaders, uh, very, very uh, uh, publicly and uh, vociferously here. Uh, so uh, there was no love lost between those two sectors, Prigozhin and so forth. Uh, so uh, the argument in the West is uh, Putin did it and uh, the Russian military shot it down, right? But we, we don't know yet. But it's a very interesting development. Uh, this stuff of uh, of uh, Mission Impossible uh, Five, you might say, film stuff. <laughs> yeah, where's Tom Cruise? <laughs> okay, Tom Cruise did it. No, just joking. Uh, anyway, uh, Tom Cruise caught the guys who did do it, right? But he'd have to be working for Putin to do that. Huh? And, you know, the big question is a missile or a bomb? It's very unlikely that it was a missile, for reasons they said. Very likely it was a bomb. Uh, but then the question is, uh, how was this bomb planted on uh, one of the two planes? You know, Prigozhin always flew around with two planes, uh, not knowing, you know, which one he was on was a kind of a, a way of protecting himself. And uh, the second plane was flying here, right? Uh, apparently they got him on the plane, on the first plane, and the second plane uh, turned back. Uh, he, you know, these are private planes. He owns these planes. He's a billionaire. Uh, I mean, his contract with uh, the Russian military defense uh, just to, to supply uh, troops here was over a billion dollars a year, and then almost another billion uh, he was getting uh, from the Russian government uh, to provide um, uh, food. You know, he started out as a restaurant caterer in this big catering business, got got to be buddy-buddy with Putin there, you know, one of the oligarchs. He's an oligarch. Well, was an oligarch. Uh, so, um, you know, this guy had a lot of money, uh, and... Uh, the question is, uh, who got him? 
who got him. It's very likely, I say over 90%, it was a bomb. Uh, but he had many enemies, you know. And how did they know he was on that first plane, not the second plane? Suggest an inside job, you know, that someone knew, someone close to him knew. Okay, so who were the possible enemies? Well, as I said, uh, you know, the head of the military in Russia there, Shoigu and Gerasimov, certainly had uh, motives. Uh, they hated this guy, uh, made him look bad. Um, well, but what about Ukraine and the security services in Ukraine? I think it's called the FBU, right? Uh, they certainly had animus for this guy, you know, playing a role he did in in the victory in that city in, in the Donbass, Bakhmut, you know. It was uh, Prigozhin and uh, the Wagner group uh, that kind of drove uh, the Ukrainians out of uh, out of Bak Bakhmut here, Uh and made him look bad, I guess, in the process, and chewed up a lot of Ukrainian forces. By the way, it also chewed up a lot of Russian forces, a lot of Prigozhin's mercenaries. Uh, and, uh, you know, most of those mercenaries were people that uh, Prigozhin recruited out of the Russian prisons. If you remember, about a year ago, he got the okay to just uh, recruit people out of the prisons. Well, he took those recruits with a little training and he threw them into the cauldron there. And a lot of them, thousands of them, reportedly were killed uh, with little training. Uh, so uh, certainly, uh, you know, people, uh, families of, uh, of those sacrificed prisoner troops uh, uh, have reason to dislike him. And, you know, some of them... Uh, were probably part of the Russian mafia, so maybe the Russian mafia, you know, had reasons uh, to dislike him. But uh, Ukraine and the security services are, uh, you know, a, a major candidate for uh, the source of, of this assassination. Uh, you know, it's not a secret that the FBU there in Ukraine uh, is has been carrying out murders in Russia. Um, and they certainly had a motive to uh, wipe out this guy. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't put it past them that it was uh, the FBU behind planting this bomb. Uh, apparently the bomb, you know, was, was planted from early and evidence is planted in uh, the, um, uh, the wheel. What do, what do they call that? We're in the wheels are pulled up, you know, whatever, you know, in, in that area there, they're telling, well, we'll see what the investigation really comes up with. And whether he was really killed, you know, we, we need DNA evidence. You know, he might have been on the other plane, who knows, you know, uh, likely, likely he was, you know, and there will be DNA evidence. So uh, <laughs> other candidates, you know, you know uh, what about the CIA? The MI5 or 6, whatever the hell it is, equivalent in the UK. I mean, these guys were clearly involved in the Nord Stream, blowing up the Nord Stream, uh, although they're saying it was the uh, <coughs> the official Western argument is, uh, well, if anyone did it, uh, if it wasn't the Russians blowing up their own <laughs> pipeline, it, it might have been the Ukrainians, you see. So. <laughs> Ukrainians are capable of that, uh, but so is the CIA and MI5 here, right? If they're going to blow up Nord Stream, they can blow up a plane. Uh, 
Um, so, you know, that's a possible source. Um, uh, the polls, Poland is a possible source because, uh, you know, uh, the Wagner Group and Prigozhin were sent to uh, uh, Belarus uh, and uh, made a lot of noise about, uh, oh, we're going to uh, march on Warsaw and kind of freaked the Poles out and the Poles have been sent in all kinds of uh, forces to their border now and everything. Uh, so, uh, you know, it made the Poles nervous. So maybe the Poles were in, involved in this. That's a possibility. Maybe France was because uh, as well as threatening Poland, uh, the Wagner Group and Prigozhin, you know, went to uh, West Africa there uh, in Niger that we know we talked about last week, uh, had a military coup and threw out the pro-France Western uh, puppet there. And the military took over in Niger. And uh, Niger is extremely important to France because it gets uh, two-thirds of its uranium ore from Niger. And France is uh, over half, I think it's over half of France's energy is nuclear. Uh, so, you know, if they get cut off, just think what uh, the cost of energy in France would be. Uh, and France was very upset in its talk, in this talk about France sending a force uh, to Niger. And the U.S. has a base in Niger that the previous government allowed, a military base. And if this uh, uh, Prigozhin who went to Niger uh, in West Africa and the Wagner's bragging about it's going to start a... Uh, uh, a new conflagration in West Africa, uh, and it's on on you know invasion of Niger is is sort of teetering on the brink here. The U.S. trying to get uh, friendly uh, countries in Niger uh, in West Africa to invade, uh, and uh, uh, Niger's native uh, na neighbors, you know, Mali and Burkina Faso and Algeria, say no, we're going to. Uh, help uh, Niger, so you know that whole area could erupt in a big regional war. And here comes Prigozhin, flies in there, and he really uh, uh, fans the flames, saying he's he's gonna, you know, Wagner's gonna participate in a big way. Uh, and it has been in Africa anyway. Uh, well, that would piss off France, wouldn't it? Yeah. So uh, France has a motive for getting rid of this guy. Poland has a motive for getting rid of this guy. Uh, CIA uh, and MI6, of course. Uh, Ukraine and its intelligence units, FBU, and, and even Russian high military, Shoigu Gerasimov, all have, well, maybe even oligarchs, you know? Who knows what this, uh, this guy did, uh, you know, to his other oligarch brothers there. Uh, and didn't have to do anything. They may say an opportunity to take over his business. Uh, and of course, you know, the oligarchs and the Russian mafia are very closely related. <clears throat> they have been for decades. So all these are other possible enemies. He had many enemies. <clears throat> and it doesn't necessarily mean Putin took him out. I'm not saying he did take, didn't take him out. I mean, we'll see. The evidence has to be forthcoming. Certainly can't jump to that conclusion yet. But, you know, it's kind of suspicious. Why the hell would Putin do this if he did it? Why the hell would he do it in the middle of the BRICS conference? I mean, the timing is really poor, right? Here he is addressing this big BRICS conference down in 
South Africa, you know, and uh, makes it look like, I mean, if he did it, that, uh, you know, he just murders his uh, people he doesn't like. Well, the West will say that's standard procedure for Putin. But, uh, you know, politi- Putin's not stupid, among uh, many things. Why would he do it at this point? You know, in the middle of BRICS conference, doesn't make sense. And why would he do it in Russia? I mean, uh, why not wait till he gets back to Africa or something, you know, and then quietly have some third party do it? Right? Um, doesn't make sense, you know, to me that... Uh, it would be so crudely done at the time it is and, and how it was done. Uh, but, you know, it gives some very useful propaganda to the West, right? It allows NATO and uh, the U.S. and the EU to say, see, see, we got to really look at this this guy uh, running Russia here. He's a threat to everybody. We, we got to continue this war until he's overthrown, Right. Uh, and probably uh, an excuse to raise sanctions further, um, and you know, a way to fan unrest among the Russian elites. You know, and boy, Prigozhin can get it all about us. You know, they feel very uh, uh, un- uncertain. Uh, so, you know, who benefits? Uh, I mean, Western propaganda benefits uh, uh, big time, and. Uh, it's not clear how Putin benefits other than getting rid of this guy who seemed to be already neutralized pretty much, you know. Uh, although, you know, there's some funny things going on with Prigozhin. Uh, there were reports uh, even before his march on Moscow there uh, of his having connections and discussions with uh, uh, Western intelligence uh, in Africa. Uh, what was that about? Uh, no one really knows. And then uh, even after he was exiled to Belarus, you know, he kept going back and forth to Petersburg and uh, Belarus, St. Petersburg city, and trying to cut deals. Uh, who is he cutting deals with? You know, business business deals, you know? I mean, because after all, he lost a $2 billion a year contract with, with the Russian government. Uh, if he was going to continue his group, his mercenary group, he had to pay them somehow if he wanted to keep them together. And there's signs that he wanted to do that. Uh, how was he going to do that without money? He would have to get money somewhere. It would be a great opportunity for the West to, you know, connect with him and offer him something. So, you know, this this guy, you know, a private, uh, not, not necessarily the patriot he let himself out to be. This is a big corporate oligarch who was uh, making a lot of money uh, using uh, uh, war as a way to make the money. A lot of them do, different ways. This was a unique way, providing uh, forces on the ground. Uh, so uh, he was, I'm sure he was scurrying around trying to find some other financial source to keep his control. Uh, because uh, after this march on on Moscow, uh, uh, there was a, uh, a meeting uh, between uh, him his, and his lieutenants and Putin in the Kremlin. And Putin tried to uh, apparently uh, sway them into uh, his lieutenants into joining, just moving into the uh, Rus- as a unit into the Russian military structure here. Uh, but apparently, Prigozhin stopped that discussion. Uh, so, you know, in doing so, he may have crossed the um, point of no return uh, with Putin. Uh, 
and uh, certainly uh, if he got funding, he would get it from the West. There's nowhere else to get it, uh, which made him kind of dangerous there if he still had control over uh, and was able to finance and, and pay his uh, private army there. Uh, so it's hard to see yet at this point, but it's kind of a messy uh, situation there. Uh, you know, who, who, who did it and how was it done? If it was done by a bomb, then, you know, inside job for sure, uh, which it appears to be, not by some missile, as the West says. Um, and uh, a whole number of sources could have uh, been involved with, quote, the bomb, bombing him, not necessarily Putin. Uh, Putin had a lot to lose if he if he gets labeled and there's proof that he was involved and given the order. Uh, I think there's other ways Putin could have dealt with him. Right? Um, and we're going to see what's happening here. There's an investigation. We'll see what kind of investigation it is. Uh, but you know, will DNA confirm it was actually him? Uh, who was on plane two? It was a question. Uh, and why did they uh, target plane one accurately, right? Uh, the effect on the war, I don't think there'll be much effect on the war here. Uh, Wagner was, in Ukraine at least, Wagner was already out of the scene. Uh, all it was doing was uh, training some of the Belarus military here um, and uh, planning to you know, get involved in West Africa more deeply again. I, I mean, the worry was, was so great by the uh, U.S. and France that that Wagner Group might might join Niger, Burkina Faso, and uh, and uh, Mali and Algeria group here, uh, which would really discourage the U.S. being able to get some uh, other African nations to invade Niger. Uh, uh, and have to do it themselves. The Fr French would have to do it themselves. Uh, I don't think the French would, uh, because uh, you know uh, the presidential elections coming up next year is too close. Um, real problem. Real problem for the U.S. African Command. Now you know there's an African Command. Uh, the French, uh, uh, it was clear a year or so ago, a couple of years ago, could not maintain its colonial empire, uh, neo-colonial empire there in West Africa, where it you know was extracting resources like uranium at dirt prices, very profitable, uh, and that's why they had the uh, that um, resurrection. Uh, yeah, I mean, what, what, uh, rebellion, I guess, by the Niger uh, military to take it over. They want a better price uh, for their resources. Okay, so uh, effect on the war I, in Ukraine, I don't think will have much effect. Uh, it may have an effect on <clears throat> the imminent war in West Africa. Uh, I think it was just a lot of puffery here about uh, in Belarus about uh, uh, Poland. Uh, so I don't think that will be uh, a factor at all. Okay, so that's uh, let's follow that. You know, that's part of the uh, Ukraine war, which uh, itself uh, seems at a stage of uh, almost an end end game for this counteroffensive. Um, as I've been saying all along, the Ukraine war here. 
the nature of modern war and technology is uh, you cannot uh, uh, attack across open plains with armor and expect uh, to be successful. Uh, those days are gone, you know, 1940s, <laughs> you could, but uh, with the military technology surveillance and, and the munitions and, and artillery and so forth, it's, uh, it's just devastating to do so. And, uh, you know, you, you need a concentration of forces that's, uh, you know, at least five to one uh, in terms of men and equipment, and Ukraine doesn't have that, um, and Russia it was able to dig in for six, six, six to nine months. Uh, so, you know, impossible, the offensive in the traditional way, throwing armor brigades at the front uh, is not going to prevail, and it didn't prevail. And by the way, the same applies to Russia. Uh, you know, the forces are, are, in terms of men and material, are kind of... Uh, even there, in terms of men, there's about 500,000 on each side. The problem is for Ukraine, it doesn't have the reserves, you know, and it's throwing, you know, it only has 60,000 who were trained in the West, and it's kind of thrown them at the wall down there in southern, um, southern Ukraine uh, with little effect. Uh, although Russia, you know, is sitting on uh, uh, 250,000 additional reserves, which they will probably commit to the war in the north uh, when they think uh, uh, the Ukraine offensive has totally petered out. Uh, I hear reports that uh, instead of uh, sacrificing uh, their uh, Western equipment uh, through these frontal attacks with armor, they're now uh, uh, doing it, uh, trying to uh, uh, penetrate uh, the Russian lines with small groups without armor harder to detect, uh, well, they're not going to get the, all the way to the Sea of Azov that way, uh, but they're looking for some successes so they can continue building up. And there's talk, you know, I read an article interesting in the Wall Street Journal about how, uh, oh, you know, the West is pretty much uh, conceded that this offensive is not going to work, that they uh, didn't really have enough men and material to make it work and that the real offensive now is going to come next spring. And in the meantime, the U.S. and NATO is really going to build, restore and rebuild the Ukrainian army for a big offensive next spring. Well, we'll see how much that actually occurs. But anyway, uh, that's the situation there in Ukraine with Progozin. Okay, now I want to talk about uh, the... Um, Jackson Hole meeting. That's in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. You know, it's a, a magnificent retreat in the mountains there uh, in, in Wyoming where every uh, August, early September, uh, the central banks of the world, central bankers and academics uh, get together uh, and, uh, you know, they issue papers about what's happening uh, with monetary policy and what should happen. Ideas. It's an idea uh, conference. And uh, the central bankers give their uh, signals as to where things are. And Powell gave his presentation this morning. Uh, and uh, his presentation was uh, cautiously hawkish, I would say. Uh, meaning rates will continue to rise here, uh, given the data, uh, should it come out the same as it has been. The next reports will be early September. Uh, 
Um, so depending on those dates uh, and that data, uh, you know, uh, Powell said this morning that, uh, well, we're going to raise rates again, right? And the other message that's been creeping into uh, the guidance here is that uh, it's likely that uh, these rates are going to stay relatively high longer. You know, the Fed may continue raising cautiously, carefully, maybe not every month uh, as it sees it needs to, but it's going to keep them up there longer now. Uh, that's significant. Right? I think they're going to raise rates one more time unless the September uh, price data is very dramatically uh, improvement. They will raise it one more time here and and then hold to see in November maybe whether they need to raise it again. Right? Uh, well, why? Why are they continuing to raise interest rates? Right? I mean, CPI consumer price index slowed from this time last year was at around nine percent. It slowed down to three point two percent. Right? Shouldn't they declare success and stop? Hmm? Well, you got to look at the composition of that inflation to answer that question. First of all, uh, the 3.2% last month for the CPI is actually an increase over the previous month of 3%. So it's not continuing to go down. It's beginning to creep back up. If you look at the composition, uh, the CPI is made up of goods and services. Goods meaning, you know, discrete things, you know, cars, appliances, housing, etc. Right? Those are goods, products, uh, commodities, whatever. Uh, and then there's services, all, all the rest. In the U.S. economy, 80% of it is services. Uh, goods inflation has come down. Uh, the Fed has been successful in bringing down prices of goods, mostly energy. You see, energy would be good goods. Uh, that came down over the last year dramatically. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the spring, food prices with the harvest and everything uh, came down. Uh, so food and what's called headline, you know, energy, food, uh, headline inflation has come down and goods have come down, goods prices. Uh, you know, the goods prices decline it might not be just due to interest rate hikes. It may be because the global economy is slipping into recession. So there's less demand for exports and therefore less production uh, for exports uh, going on everywhere. And uh, that's because of declining demand uh, everywhere globally. Uh, so to some extent, the goods inflation abatement may be due in part at least to the slowing global economy as well as Fed interest rates. But now Fed interest rates don't seem to be having much effect on services. And we know that they can't have much effect on supply side causes of inflation or price gouging by corporations. And a lot of this inflation has always been price gouging in certain sectors by corporations, and supply-side problems, whether it's global supply chains for a while, right, uh, or domestic supply chains, uh, or whether it's uh, commodity prices that, uh, that you know, 
spiked up because of uh, Ukraine war and the sanctions, right? Uh, those are all supply side issues contributing to this inflation. And then, of course, we have uh, uh, supply chains domestically, as I said, but also collapsing productivity in the U.S., which results in unit labor cost increases uh, across the board for m many industries that can raise their prices to recoup their unit labor costs. Uh, uh, and, and services themselves don't seem as responsive uh, to the rate hikes. Now, it just may be that the rate hikes aren't high enough yet. You know, I mean, don't, don't forget in the 1980s, uh, to shake out supply-side driven inflation under Reagan, uh, the Fed had to raise rates to 15 percent. It's only at five and a half percent. Yeah. And already, you know, a contradiction here is that five and a half percent, it causes stress on, the, on some of the banks, the regional banking system under stress, right? We see that, which is still a problem. Uh, so the Fed can't raise rates to 15 percent. I mean, that would precipitate a depression. But maybe it can't shake out services inflation unless the rates go significantly higher than five and a half percent at current, right? Now, that five and a half percent rate is, is the result of perhaps the most rapid increase in decades in Fed interest rates, right? Uh, in 22 years at least. Uh, and also keep in mind that a year ago, November and December, Powell in his press conferences as he was raising rates kept saying that the target that the, he, he, ha he has to go after is services and services employment. He wants much more unemployment in the services sector to bring down services prices because he said even last December that, oh, we're having success on goods prices. As I said, that's the picture, right? Goods prices are flat. They're not rising. Uh, but services uh, are chronically high and show signs of increasing. Uh, and... Uh, Services prices have been stuck around five and a half to six six point three percent for three months now. In other words, five and a half percent increase in interest rates seems to have run its course in how far it can drive down service prices, which are stuck for three months at six percent roughly. Right, three months you know is enough to show that interest rates at five five and a half percent is not going to bring services inflation down significantly. So they're going to have to raise it more. But then again, they got this problem, you know, with the regional banks. Okay. And also the problem is beginning to emerge that sources of, of inflation in general are beginning to creep back into the picture here, right? Uh, energy prices, as I said, uh, were a big reason for the decline <clears throat> in general over the past year, uh, in goods in particular. Uh, but now OPEC is raising prices again. It's cutting sharply, cutting sharply production all of OPEC, uh, cutting production to keep prices up. And global crude prices are creeping back up into the $80 per barrel. Right. Uh, so 
that's being passed on by U.S. Uh, refineries and oil companies. They, they don't mind uh, supply problems at, at the crude crude side because U.S. refiners are the bottleneck here. Uh, we haven't built a re oil refinery in decades, and they're not going to, uh, which allows them to manipulate uh, gasoline prices by manipulating uh, refinery capacity. You know, you have a, a maintenance or a shutdown or a fire or whatever, you know, and that's the excuse to jack up uh, prices at, at the refinery level, which gets passed on to prices at the gas station. Okay, so those uh, prices are creeping back up here uh, in uh, uh, on the energy side, right? Also, we see that uh, landlords are continuing gouging, price gouging significantly here. Uh, a year ago, uh, Powell predicted by the summer, uh, rent prices would come down. Well, they're not coming down. Nope. They're still gouging people. Uh, you know, rents are on average, on average, nationally, on average, 30% higher than they were uh, before COVID. Now, people's wages aren't gone up 30%. Right. That hasn't happened. <laughs> uh, so people are getting squeezed uh, by by lodging costs, right? And then you got the apparent anomaly here of housing prices beginning to creep back up too. Well, why is that? Interest rates are so high, it's depressed demand for housing significantly. I mean, housing is a two thirds. Housing is in a recession. It's that two thirds of what it was. Uh, uh, b before the recession, uh, how could that be? Well, that's because supply has collapsed even faster than demand has collapsed, and uh, prices are rising there. Also, because uh, apparently one of the hot spots of services inflation is insurance, including mortgage and housing insurances. Uh, that's surging. Well, that gets passed on by builders uh, into their prices. So, uh, Housing prices are creeping back up. Price gouging is continuing to go on, not just renters, and but insurance companies, and not just housing insurance. Uh, one of the big uh, rapid uh, areas of, of inflation is uh, auto insurance, you know, rising at a 20% annual rate here, at least. You know, th these numbers are even greater for those who uh, are actually getting hit with the rent increase and insurance increases. You know, these are national averages, and not all the landlords raise prices, not all the insurance uh, you know, rates are, are increased. So the number is averaged that I cite here, and that number comes down. But if you're one of those who get hit by it, you know, it's not a 30% a, a uh, rent increase. It's like a 50, 100% rent increase that you're experiencing. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, price gouging is going on. And it looks like, uh, once again, uh, processed foods and dairy uh, are uh, – an area of uh, creeping inflation again. They played a big factor here last year in that 9% overall inflation. You know, eggs had doubled and uh, dairy had doubled, et cetera. So, um, you know, that came down in the spring, but now it seems to be creeping back up. So, you know, insurance companies, processed food companies, landlords, 
housing companies. Uh, th these are all sources of, uh, of price gouging that continue here. And the Fed can't do anything about that. Right. Uh, and now we got global commodities prices beginning to creep up again. You know, the sanctions and the war cause commodities. When commodities, you know, we mean industrial commodities, metals and so forth, but also uh, grains, you know, like wheat and corn and, and sunflower and things like that. That's oil. Uh, that's all what we call commodities. And uh, they had a big spike last uh, summer. When you have, um, you know, the Ukraine war and the sanctions, uh, and and then they abated some, but now, uh, you know, the grain deal fell through in Ukraine here, and grain prices are creeping up again, and the weather uh, is so bad in the Midwest in terms of drought and heat uh, that it looks like the supply of grains in this country uh, is going to take a hit this year, which means, you know, you reduce supply. Uh, the uh, uh, corporations that control uh, the baking and, 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 and the seeds and so forth raise their prices and therefore you play, pay more for a loaf of bread, you know, some of the things at, at the grocery store. Okay. Now, there's another reason why Fed rates may continue to rise, not just chronic inflation services and other and then creeping sources of reinflation again, uh, and that's um, that the Fed, Federal Reserve, uh, you know, it sells bonds uh, in order to get money from investors uh, to cover the U.S. annual budget deficit. You see, uh, tax revenues um, fall short of all government spending, which is increasing on the defense side. It falls short. Uh, by a large amount, by, by trillions of dollars, that's the budget deficit. Well, how how does the government then actually spend more than the tax revenues it brings in? Well, it borrows the money. How does it borrow the money? It sells bonds. The Fed sells bonds to investors and gets their money to cover the annual budget deficit. Well, when you got a budget deficit that is continuing to grow at a trillion, trillion and a half a year with no end in sight here. You know, we're at, what, $34 trillion national debt. National debt just the annual accumulation of the deficits, right? So if the national debt last year was $33 trillion and you have a trillion and a half uh, new uh, budget deficit, that adds a trillion and a half to the 33, and now you're $34 and a half trillion national debt. And then you're going to pay more the Fed has to pay even more uh, interest to attract to attract investors. If inflation is up, you know it's got to uh, offer uh, paying interest uh, to those who buy its treasuries, uh, at least equivalent to inflation, or darn close to it. Right. So uh, it it raises the interest rate that it offers to pay on its bonds that it sells. Oh, that's another reason why interest rates are going up. Yeah. There's another third reason, and that's uh, QT, you know, selling off its, its, its debt, its $9 trillion debt. I'm not going to go into that. That's just another factor that contributes some.
But we've, you know, we've got three reasons why interest rates are uh, chronically high here. One, they can't get a control of services inflation and new, new forces coming in. Uh, you know, and two, uh, they've got to finance this record budget deficit and debt by selling more, and they got to offer even more attractive rates that they'll pay to attract the buying of the treasuries, right? They got to raise interest rates to sell the bonds. They're raising interest rates to try to reduce inflation with minimal, limited success, but they're also raising interest rates to sell treasuries in order to finance the annual budget deficit. And then, of course, you know, there's this this other thing about QT, they're dumping, dumping, uh, selling off their uh, their debt. Uh, but then another for- force coming around the corner here that will keep uh, uh, Treasury bonds rates high, right? Is uh, what's happening on the global scale? What's happening uh, with the U.S. dollar here? Right. Well. Foreign countries are buying fewer and fewer treasuries, particularly China is not buying as much treasuries because, you know, there's a a tech war, economic war going on with China. China is, you know, reducing its holdings of treasuries. You know, maybe Japan and others will buy up the difference. Who knows? But to the extent that that the dollar uh, becomes less of the international trading and reserve currency, in other words, de-dollarization occurs, right, to the extent that there's less demand for dollars, that means the value of the dollar is going to decline, you know, reduce demand, the price declines, the value of the dollar, the price of the dollar will decline, and the Fed will have to raise interest rates to attract buyers a smaller group of buyers, right? So long-term, long-term, the Fed has to keep rates high. This is just beginning, this this whole process, de-dollarization, you know. But long-term, it looks chronic. Long-term, the Fed will keep rates higher. Chronic long-term, the Fed has to keep rates higher to finance the budget deficit, right? And then we have inflation, three reasons why interest rates for long term will chronically remain high. And that's why the Fed is saying, you know, even if we shake out some more inflation, uh, it's going to remain chronically high. And you can count on that. You can count on these forces keeping interest rates high. High meaning, you know, maybe not uh, uh, at five, six percent forever, uh, but uh, certainly three to five percent for treasuries here uh, for some time. Okay, so I touched upon this last topic here when I talked about de-dollarization, which I've talked about before on the show, right? De-dollarization means that less demand for U.S. dollars for financing global trade, buying and selling goods and services in dollars, and energy, oil, and commodities of various kinds were almost totally sold, bought and sold in dollars in previous years. Okay, that's been declining slowly over time. Uh, but the 
Biden's sanctions, both on Russia and on, uh, on China, and the threat of secondary sanctions, there were such sanctioning countries that, in violation of the original sanctions, trade with Russia and China, uh, has convinced a lot of countries uh, to try to become less dependent on the dollar. You see, the dollar financed all these commodities, energy, and so forth, most of global trade. And uh, if you don't want to get stuck with sanctions by the U.S. or the U.S. pulling uh, on your country the same stuff that they've been pulling on Russia, right, you want to get out from under the dollar. Well, how you do that? You get another currency somehow to trade. Now, that brings us back to the BRICS, this group of five countries that are adding six more. I don't know if Argentina is going to join because Argentina uh, is trying to renegotiate its um, IMF debt here. And I'm sure the IMF is telling them, you join the BRICS, we're not going to give you the terms you want. So that remains to be seen. But the other ones are all energy-producing countries, right? Iran. United Arab Republic, Saudi Arabia, even Egypt and Ethiopia produce oil. That means to me that the BRICS are inviting these countries to join right now, which gives the BRICS uh, even a greater control over the vol total volume of oil, the oil trade. Uh, which says to me that the BRICS who announced already they're going to come up with an alternative trading currency you know, to get rid of uh, reliance on the dollar. Uh, and that means to me, and, and most of, you know, all of oil is traded in dollars, although that's been breaking down, uh, it means to me that this new BRIC alternative currency is going to be based on oil to some extent and gold, to some extent, and maybe a basket of uh, of currencies, you know, uh, maybe uh, you know the Chinese yuan will be in there, or there may be a couple other things as well. Um, so there will be an alternative currency. Now, as I said a minute ago, an alternative currency to buy and sell energy and other commodities and goods means less demand for the dollar, which means to attract purchases of. Fed treasuries to finance the budget deficit, the Fed has to raise interest rates even more. Okay. And, and in other words, the dollar is the linchpin of the U.S. global economic empire. And you undermine the dollar, it has reverberations uh, across the board, you know. And what it will do, one reverberation is uh, it will lower the dollar and uh, it means that the dollar, the, the Fed and monetary policy uh, is, is going to get more difficult. It's already difficult, you see, because the financialization of the U.S. economy over the decades, right, means that if the Fed tries to raise rates to really dampen inflation, it can only go so far without precipitating financial crisis like the regional banking crisis or the crypto crisis or something like that, right? Uh, so monetary policy is facing significant contradictions. Neo, neoliberal monetary policy, as I've been saying, you know, they can't raise interest rates without exacerbating the financial system. They can't raise it enough in order to uh, really deal with inflation. 
Right, they're between a rock and a hard place. They got to choose which one. Well, the Fed has chosen to keep raising interest rates so far and deal with the regional bank instability one on one. In other words, as each bank, you know, may get in trouble, bail it out. Right. And by the way, uh, S and P and Moody's and Fitch rating agencies have all downgraded about a dozen more regional banks in the U.S. So that problem is still there. Right. Uh, but back to the BRICS, you know, this BRIC move uh, means the other shoe's going to fall, and that is they're going to start trading in an alternative currency. Now, if they do that, they're going to have to have an alternative international payment system associated with it, and that means the U.S. dominated and run SWIFT, that's an acronym, SWIFT uh, uh, International Payment System uh, is going to be bypassed. Bypass the dollar, you're going to bypass SWIFT, you see. And SWIFT is the key for the U.S. trying to enforce its sanctions because SWIFT tells them who's violating, who's, who's buying the Russian oil, right? Well, it allows the U.S. banks, uh, run by, you know, in this case with the government, uh, to peer in and see uh, who's buying Russian oil and commodities and whatever. But uh, they can't peer in and see if it's another currency, you see. So uh, uh, that further undermines the effectiveness of sanctions. And I'm sure on the, on the tail of all this, uh, the BRICS will establish an, an IMF-like uh, institution. You know, IMF is there uh, to provide countries uh, that have a problem with their uh, currency, to bail out their currency, see. Well, if you've got an alternative currency, you're going to have to have an alternative IMF-like institution. Right. And as far as a World Bank institution, well, the Chinese are already deeply involved uh, with their own uh, financing projects around the world. Uh, so what you see is a parallel kind of a international system taking form, very, very early stage taking form, but taking form nonetheless, which means uh, the U.S. global empire foundation is cracking. The economic empire is cracking. And you can blame Biden for accelerating the whole process with his stupid sanctions, not very well thought out, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, the desperate act, uh, you know, the neocons who are driving NATO, who are driving wars, incessant con con chronic wars by the U.S. for the last 20-some years, you know, we go from one war to the next, uh, you know, they are wrecking the capitalists, their own capitalist economic empire uh, with their policies. They're wrecking the financial uh, fiscal policy arrangement. They're wrecking the monetary policy. They're wrecking the uh, global dollar and money flows. And what you're going to see is a bifurcation of the global economy. The U.S. is, is circling the wagons of its G7 closest allies uh, to make sure that that is secure. And then they'll compete uh, with the BRICS uh, for the rest of the world's allegiance. And most of the rest of the world will play both sides against the middle. They'll play with both. But it's a, it's a, it's a loss for the U.S. empire, clearly. They haven't thought this out. The neocons are dumb. You know, they really are dumb people. They, you know, they, they just want one thing. Uh, they want to destroy and take over the world. <clears throat> and even nuclear war, tactical nuclear nukes are okay. That's how far they'll go. 
uh, if they keep running the show, you know, and I'm talking about Newland, Victoria Newland, and Sullivan, and Blinken, and all the rest of those fools out there who are driving us to world war. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, uh, the economic side of this is tied in with all of this, these policies. The U.S. is is uh, focused on prime, primarily on its political empire and political influence. You know, that's why it provoked this war in part to uh, bring NATO under its control once again. And so politics take precedent over economics, but the economics are going to come back and bite them in the butt, and it is already. They're undermining their own global economic empire to continue their dumb wars, you know, and their NATO expansion and so forth. And that's the problem that they... Okay, uh, next week, we're talking about what is exploitation. <laughs> <laughs>